Well, good morning, One Church. What's up? So glad that you are here. My name is Carlo. I get to be one of the teaching pastors here. Shout out to everyone watching online in the video venue, wherever you're at. Maybe you're watching this later on in the week. We're just glad that you've chosen to connect with us today. We're in part two of our David series. David is arguably one of the most popular, well-known characters, persons in all of the Bible. I love the story of David, his ups, his downs, just everything about him. Like I shared with you last week when I was doing my doctoral research, I focused on the life of David, wrote a book on David, a chapter of David's life that we're actually going to talk about in two weeks in a little bit more detail. If you're interested in one of those, come see me again at the Next Steps table. But I just love David, all things King David. He was an awesome shepherd, awesome father. He was a, well, he wasn't that awesome of a father, but he was a father. Uh, He was a great shepherd and a warrior and a leader and a politician. But more than all of those things, David is immortalized in scripture as being a man after God's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. And so today we're gonna unpack what that really means. I think more than any of David's successes on the battlefield or his failures off the battlefield, what sets David apart is that David was a worshiper. He was a worshiper, and so we're going to get to that today. We'll be in 1 Samuel 30, and we'll be on the screen on your YouVersion app if you want to pull that out, and we're going to zoom in on one specific element of his life that I think will apply to us today in a real, real way. Any America's Funniest Home Video fans in the room? Anyone like to watch AFV? Yes, that show still does come on, whether you, if you didn't know that or not. I watch it on Hulu. I don't watch it live, but my wife and I love to watch it, and it's kind of a, a, a tension I wrestle with when I'm watching this show, because it makes my emotions go all over the place. Like, I don't know what's funny about a 60-year-old falling down a flight of stairs, but I laugh anyway. I mean, my, my mind says, broken bones, Dr. Bill, oh, poor thing. As I'm laughing out loud, have you been there? See a kid get, you know, a little three-year-old kid just get kicked right in the head on that show, and we chuckle and we laugh, and just the craziest things happen. We're, it's America's Funniest Home Videos for a reason, I think it's because of all the great things we've done as American people. One thing we're really good at is inappropriate humor. We're really good at laughing at things you probably shouldn't laugh at. Don't sit there all churchy and pious like you don't know what I'm talking about. I've seen your Facebook posts. I saw that meme you just shared this morning. You all know exactly what I'm talking about, right? We laugh about things and then say, am I actually going to go to hell because I just laughed at that joke? Like, be honest with you. We, We deal with this tension. Our emotions can get all over the place. We laugh at the wrong things. And then we don't laugh enough. Believe it or not, between childhood and adulthood, we lose about 140 laughs a day. So something changes in us. The older we get, the more serious we get, the more stressed out we get, and we lose our laughter. If we walk down a couple of uh, feet to our kids' environment, one-way street, you'd probably see a handful of fourth graders, third graders laughing their heads off. What are they laughing about? I don't know. Someone could have passed gas. Someone could have said a funny word. It doesn't matter. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to them. They find the humor and laughing. We don't laugh at the right things, or we don't laugh enough, and we're a culture that is addicted to outrage. We love to be mad about something. Just post your political opinion on Facebook, and you'll see really quickly just how much people love to be angry about stuff. It doesn't take much, right, to stir up emotions. I can divide a room real easy by saying something like this, go Cowboys. Some of y'all love me, and some of y'all are about to walk out. Like, I just lost two people. They're not going to hear a word from the Bible today because they're just so angry that I would say that word in this room, right? We, we get so angry and fired up about all kinds of things. We get angry too quickly. We don't laugh at the right things, or we don't laugh enough, and we don't cry enough. 
We don't process that emotion well, especially men, especially American men. We don't process. Now, I'm not saying walk around crying all the time. If you're crying 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you need to talk to someone. That's not even a joke. I'm being serious. You shouldn't always be crying, but it is okay to let it out sometimes. I ask my son, I pick up my, my youngest son during the school year. I pick him up every day from school, and there's three questions I ask him because I want us to be intentional about managing our emotions in my house, especially I have two sons. So I want them to be the best men they can be. And so we talk about emotions a lot and over-communicating and how to get things out. And, and so I ask my youngest son three questions. Every day I pick him up from school like clockwork. First thing I ask him is, what did you learn today? In the Serrano house, you learn something every day. You're not allowed to say, I didn't learn anything today. Like my son knows it's going to be a long afternoon if I tell dad I didn't learn something today because I'm going to teach him some lessons. You know what I'm talking about? He's going to learn real. So he, he, he's picked up. I better have an answer. Because in good and bad, there's always something that I can learn. So I ask him, what did you learn today? Then I ask him, what made you laugh today? What made you laugh today? I ask him that question because I want him to be able to find joy, even in the most sucky situation of school sometimes. You should still be able to find joy, some kind of humor, some kind of laughter. So I challenge my 13-year-old son, tell me a funny story. What happened today? And usually it's what 13-year-olds would say. Oh, this kid tripped and it was funny. Or, oh, this kid passed gas in class and it was, sounded hilarious. And he'll actually replicate the sound in the car. Then we're both laughing, right? And then I'm kind of embarrassed that I'm still laughing at stuff. I'm not embarrassed at all. I'm, I think it's hilarious right? So what made you laugh? And the final question I ask him is, what made you mad today? What made you mad or what made you sad? Because I don't want him to develop the muscle of holding things in or thinking that life is all about the serious and the funny. I want him to understand it's okay to process what you're going through. And this is a safe environment here. It's me and you. There's no judgment. Hey man, what, what ticked you off today? And sometimes it's okay. He'd tell me, man, I can't stand this teacher. They did this and this. And while I don't let him get disrespectful, I let him process that because it's important to know what to do with our emotions. The, the, Nehemiah told us in the Hebrew scriptures that, that laughter, uh, excuse me, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And Solomon said, laughter does good like medicine. And so Jesus said, you know, said the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Apostle Paul says it to the church at Ephesus, in your anger, do not sin. All of these emotional words with clues that we are supposed to be able to handle them and manage them and live with them in a certain way. But the reality is life stinks and it's hard and it's full of pressure and it's not easy to manage those emotions. But God is so awesome. He doesn't call us to do anything that he hasn't given us a hack on how we can walk it out. Isn't that cool? God doesn't call us to do anything that he doesn't give us a little tip, a little hack, a little, a little nudge in a direction of here's how you can do the thing that I'm calling you to do. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is to process your emotions in a healthy and in a Christ-centered way. Here's why. It's because the temptation to make things worse in our life comes the most when we're angry, isolated, or afraid. You and I have the greatest temptation to make our lives worse when we're angry, when we're isolated, and when we're afraid. So if we don't know how to process our emotions in those states, we typically go from bad to worse, and it's usually self-inflicted. That's why it's important for us to understand what's the best way to handle our emotions. I wish I could tell you it was to read a book. I wish I could tell you it was follow these five steps, but it's really much simpler than that, and we see it lived out here, and it's our big idea today. When everything falls apart, Worship anyway.
That's it. That's the key. When everything falls apart in your life, worship anyway. Now, let me set some of you free this morning. Worship is not just the singing part of a church service. So worship is not synonymous with singing. I've heard some of you sing, and I'm thankful that worship is not just synonymous with singing, right? The Bible says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, not unto the Carlo. I don't want to hear that. You go somewhere else with that sound coming out of your mouth, whatever, you know. It's not just the song part. And we don't live lives of worship sometimes because we think, well, I can't sing, so I can't worship. And that's not the case at all. There is a musical element to worship for sure. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but it's not just that. The English word we use, worship, it just means to attribute worth to someone, to give someone what they're worth. But the actual biblical term is a posture. Did you know that? It's a posture term. It means to lay down, to prostrate yourself. In the presence of someone greater than you, you lay down. You get low. Think humility. That's what worship really is. Worship is an attitude that says there is a God and I am not that God. Aren't you glad I'm not God? You better be, because I would not be a nice God. I know who said that amen, and she knows me well. That was, that was the most authentic amen I've heard in a long time, because I feel the same way. I'm glad I'm not God too, because some of y'all would be in trouble, including the person who just amened. Moving on. <laughs> That's worship. It's to say there is a God, and I'm not that God. There's someone greater, someone bigger, someone wiser than me and someone I can put my trust in. And so to be a worshiper is to just live your life in that direction. And David was a man after God's own heart because what's God's heart? What's God's desire? It's that all of us would enjoy him and his creation and live for him and worship him and glorify him. God's desire is that we would all know that he is God that he is for us, that he is good, that he is true, that he is just, that he's full of grace and mercy. That's what God wants for all of us. And David was a man after God's own heart because that's what he pursued more than anything. He chased hard after God. So we're gonna look at this story in David's life, a time where he was angry, isolated, and afraid. And we're gonna see how worship turns the tables and helps David through a very difficult situation. So in 1 Samuel 30, start reading in verse one, it says this, three days later, when David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziklag, they found the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziklag and they crushed Ziklag and burned it to the ground. They carried off the women and children and everyone else without killing anyone. So a lot has happened in the life of David between this week and last week. Last week, we left David. He was on the field, battlefield. He was standing over Goliath with Goliath's head in one hand, Goliath's sword in the other hand, reigning as the champion. So how does David get from killing that giant to right here in this situation? Well, here's the short version of it. David becomes a a champion. He's a hero. He marries the king's daughter. He becomes a part of the king's army. He starts working for the king. And as the folklore of David rises in the nation of Israel, they begin to write songs about David that paint David in a good light and paint King Saul in a bad light. So basically the king becomes insanely jealous of David and he tries to kill David. And so David has to escape King Saul. He runs for his life. He goes out into the wilderness of Judea to the, to the hills, to the caves. And what's fascinating is as David's running from the king, the Bible says that people came from all over Israel to, to follow David. People who had no home, they were roughnecks, they were outcasts. They actually flocked to David and started fighting and living alongside David. So David's on the run from Israel, from the the army of Israel, from King Saul, and David starts to form his own 
army. He has this, his own little nation that's forming within the nation. So David's on the run, hopping from place to place. The king is constantly pursuing him. David ends up telling some lies to try to get out of a bad situation. Don't lie to get out of a bad situation. It makes things worse. And that's what happens to David. David ends up going back to the Philistines. We remember the Philistines from last week. This was the big nation that was fighting against Israel. And they actually end up providing David with a place of refuge. Talk about irony. David, who became famous by killing a Philistine giant and helping wipe out the Philistine army, now he's actually going to them and they're giving him refuge. They give David a town called Ziklag. Ziklag was David and his men. It was their place of refuge. It was their place of peace, relaxation. It was the place where after a long day, long trip, on, on downrange, deployed, they could come back and relax, kick off their gear, hang out with their family. It was a nice place to be. Imagine if you were in the army, uh, for those of you who did serve, Ziklag is like that mythical fob we all heard about, that Ford operating base that had a, a movie theater and a Burger King and all these comforts. And even though you were kind of deployed, you weren't really, that's what Ziklag was a very peaceful place, relax, place of relaxation. If you weren't in the military, where would you like to go on vacation every year to get away from all of the junk of your life? You got that place in your head? That's Ziklag. It's your place of refuge, place of safety, place of solitude. But instead, you come from a long trip. You've been working hard. You're expecting relaxation. You're expecting your favorite drink. You're expecting to hang out with your kids and relax and just let your guard down. But instead, when you show up, Ziklag is on fire. The place you love to go to relax is burned to the ground. And you can smell the smoke and it stings your eyes. And, and you can see where your kids used to play, but it's completely destroyed and demolished. And it's demolished by these people called the Amalekites. The Amalekites, they were a nomadic nation that most scholars consider to be ancient terrorists. The Amalekites essentially would wait for other people to do a lot of work, and then they would come in and steal all of the good work of someone else and go on. And that's what happened to David. Imagine you worked hard on a garden in your yard, and you worked all season. You got everything ready. You're going to have a big harvest. And then right before harvest, you go on a four-day weekend out of town, and you come back, and someone has stolen all of the vegetables out of your garden. How would you feel? Oh, but they also kicked down your front door and stole everything out of your house. Oh, and then they burned your house to the ground. That's the Amalekites. That's what they did all of the time. And this time, they destroy the town of Ziklag and they steal everything, including all of the wives and the children. They take everything. How angry would you be if you were one of David's men in that situation? How, how isolated would you feel? How alone, how frustrated to see life just completely in utter ruin. Maybe you can't relate to a story of these warriors, but you do know what it's like for everything in your life to come crashing down, don't you? You know what it's like for life to be going good, and then all of a sudden, you get a report from the doctor. All of a sudden, you have that tough conversation with your boss. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, everything hits the fan in your life. And in that moment, you're frustrated, you're angry, you feel alone, you feel hurt, you feel afraid. Let's keep reading. Verse three says, when David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. David's two wives, Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, were among those captured. They wept until they had no more strength 
to weep, one translation says. They wept until they could weep no more. They were overcome by emotion. Crying is a fascinating process. Our body produces different types of tears. You have your tears that just keep your eyes lubricated, basal tears, and you have reflexive tears when you're, when you're cutting onions, right? Your, your eyes water, or when someone's bad breath cuts you, your eyes might water up, right? You, those reflexive, instinctive tears. And then there's emotional tears, tears of joy. Anyone cry when they're happy? Happy tears, see some hands. Yeah, my wife, she's a happy crier. Any angry criers, you cry when you get really mad. Me too. Many a fight I've been in as a youth, throwing blows, just <laughs> bawling my eyes out. It's actually a funny sight, right? Just cry when you get angry. It's amazing when we cry emotional tears the way God fearfully and wonderfully made our bodies that they actually can help regulate our emotional state when our, our hormones get a little out of whack just by the process of crying. Here's a free hack. When you take a shower at the right temperature, did you know that it's like an external crying process? And that water hitting your body at the right temple will help regulate some of your hormones as well. So if you're having a bad day, go cry in the shower. That's free. I won't even bill y'all for that. But I'm telling you, you're going you're gonna to feel great after a good cry in the shower. It's okay. Now, these men that were with David, it says they cried until they had no strength left to weep. And I'm interested in strength training. I like to lift heavy things and I like to throw humans around. And so I'm interested in what, how, how hard do you have to cry to be so tired you can't even, you're completely exhausted. These were tough guys that David rolled with right? These are, these are some of the most elite warriors in the history of warfare that followed David around. He had men like uh, Jeshabim who used one spear and killed 300 people in one day. He had another warrior who fought so long that his sword actually stuck into his hand. He couldn't let it down. He had another warrior named Benaiah who one day saw a lion going down into a pit, and Benaiah said, how interesting, and he went into the pit and killed the lion. Like, who does that? Who chases down a lion just for the sport of it to see if he can do it. These guys, they fought giants themselves. They were hardcore warriors, men like Abishai. And there's so many of them, hardcore warriors. And last week, we saw that David was no slouch, was he? Before David killed Goliath, David said, hey, one time a lion took one of my dad's lambs and I went and snatched the food out of the lion's mouth. And then I killed the lion with my bare hands. And then a bear came and I beat the bear to death with a club. This is a hardcore guy tough guy. You might be in this room and you're a tough guy. I promise you, you're not a beat a, a bear with a club tough guy, but maybe close. So these are tough guys. And yet when they think about what could happen to their wives, when they think about their poor kids, they weep, they cry so hard. They're overcome with emotion. So they don't have any strength left at all. Can you imagine the noise that came up from that camp as these warriors were just sobbing and weeping. They were overcome with emotion to the point of exhaustion, angry, isolated, afraid, and things are about to get worse. Verse six says, David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters, and they began to talk of stoning him. If you're not familiar with some of this biblical terminology, stoning means kind of what it sounds like. They're going to pick up rocks and hit David in the face with those rocks until he dies. These hardcore warriors who David knows how tough they are, he's seen them fight in battle. He knows what they're capable of doing. And now it's bad enough that David lost his wife, his wives, and his kids. Now all of a sudden, the very friends who are supposed to be there and have his back 
in his time of need, what are they thinking of doing? Killing him. Sometimes the very people we depend on the most can often turn on us when we need them the most. I don't know why that happens, but it does. I bet in that moment, David felt very alone, very afraid, hair standing up on the back of his neck as he's thinking of, how am I gonna get out of this situation? And some of you are in that right now. You feel completely alone, that nobody cares, that everyone's against you, you're struggling, you're hurting, and it's in this very moment when you're angry, isolated, and afraid that we make decisions that often complicate things even more. It's when we're in this kind of moment, back against the wall, that we end up making decisions that have consequences that are worse than the situation to begin with. We typically do three things in these situations. We find someone to blame. Someone once said that success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. And David is experiencing that. He's blown it, and now everyone wants to turn on him. And sometimes when things go bad in our lives, we look for someone to blame. Who can I stone? Who can I blame for how bad the situation is? So we turn, we wage war against the wrong person. Our marriage starts to go south and we fight with each other instead of realizing we got to fight for each other. We make things worse. Or instead of looking for someone to stone, we just give up. We run away. We think, well, if I just wasn't around, the problem would go away. But it only makes it worse. It never makes it better to run away. Or worse, we turn our backs on God. We turn our backs on the only one who can actually help us and save us to begin with. David's response when he's angry, isolated, and afraid, it's the game changer in this text. And it's the one thing I want you to highlight, underline, remember this forever, because it's the key to helping us manage our emotions in a healthy way when everything falls apart in our lives. Let's look back at verse six. David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters, and they began the talk of stoning him. But look at this. But David found strength in the Lord his God. David found strength in God. Some translations say David encouraged himself in the Lord. Sometimes in your hardest trial, the very people who are supposed to be for you are gonna be the ones that turn on you. But there's one person who's never gonna turn on you. He's always for you, and that is God. So David knew, I have to encourage myself right now. I can't depend on anyone around me. There's no one around me that can help me in this. I got to encourage myself, and I'm going to do that by worshiping. I'm going to turn to God. I'm going to turn to the one that's greater, that's above. Maybe David remembered the rejection from his father. He remembered the kind of the hate from his brothers. He remembered being alone out there by himself when everyone was telling him that he couldn't do it, and he remembered there's a God who helped me before. Thank God for friends and, and for, for all the people around us in our lives. But I know without fail, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and that's Jesus. We sang about him this morning. I know I can always turn to him. David found strength in God. And unless you've developed the ability to do that, your character may fail in times of crisis if you don't know how to turn to God. Let me ask you, where do you turn first when things go crazy in your life? It's the first call you make. Is it to get on Facebook and tell us all about how much things are sucking in your life? 
I'm telling you, there's no comment section that's going to save you from the junk you're in. Maybe it's to pick up the phone and and call your other friend who's in just as much of a mess as you because misery loves company. Where do you turn to first? I pray you would turn like David to the only one who's really equipped to save you from your worst nightmare, the only one who's equipped to walk with you through that valley of the shadow of death. Now, I'm a friend, and I'm a pastor, and I'm a pastoral counselor, and yes, you should talk to all of those people. Get the help that you need. But first, and always, make sure that while you're doing that, you're talking and communicating with and worshiping the only one who can really save you from your mess. That's what David did. I think David developed the habit of worshiping on those lonely nights as a shepherd, those scary nights when the bear was coming or maybe after the bear left, David knew how to get that shot of courage to help him through the toughest of times. He knew that God was for him and so he could just turn to God and God would be there for him in in, in whatever it is that he was facing. When everything falls apart, worship anyway. David encouraged himself in the Lord. Maybe David called out to God like this. Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident. Maybe David prayed Psalm 18, I love you, Lord, you are my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my savior, my God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me in my place of safety. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and he saved me from my enemies. Those are not the words of someone who worships once a week. Those are not the words of someone who reduces worship down to a song. That's the heart's cry of someone who every day understands there is a God and I am not that God. And I'm gonna live my life as a reflection of that, trusting in him, trusting in him alone. Do you hear the personal nature of that psalm? That same kind of intimacy is available to you and I when we choose to worship God. Even when everything falls apart, we choose to consistently turn to him, knowing that he's good and that he's forced. Now, David didn't write Psalm 18, Psalm 27 in the context of 1 Samuel 30, but I believe those words were in him because it's who David was. He was a worshiper. And here's the good news, the rest of the story. 1 Samuel 30, verse 8. Then David asked the Lord, should I chase after this band of raiders? Will I catch them? That's a cool lesson on how to pray specific prayers. It's one thing to say, hey, God, shall I go? It's another thing to say, hey, God, shall I go? And will I win? I like that David asked both questions. And the Lord told him, yes, go after them. You will surely recover everything that was taken from you. So fast forward to verse 18. David got back everything the Amalekites had taken, and he rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing small or great, son or daughter, nor anything else that had been taken. David brought what? Everything back. Everything back. Enemies tried to invade your life and steal your peace and your joy and your hope. And I'm telling you, when you worship God, when you lean into him, this is the great promises we have of God, that he is so good, he restores everything. 
everything back, nothing missing. Even the things we think we need, he can replace them with things even better for us. That's the great promise that we have in that story. Maybe you're here and you're just hurting because somebody wronged you. You're here this morning and you are terrified of the future. You've got some news. You just don't know how you're going to deal with it, how you're going to process it. Here's what I know. There's strength and there's peace available to all of us when we encourage ourselves in the Lord by worshiping. So how do we do it practically? Let me give you a couple things, then we'll be done. First thing is this. When the feces hits the fan, focus on God. And it's going to hit the fan. Don't focus on the feces or the fan. That's what we like to do. We focus on the mess. We focus on what spreads the mess. Instead, I focus on God. You say, Carlo, that sounds good for a bumper sticker. How do I live that out? Practically, that means make space in your life to worship God in every way possible. Start with what you know. If we equate worship with music, then you need to get a Spotify playlist, a Pandora playlist on your phone with some good Jesus music, the stuff we sing on a Sunday that's gonna get your attitude thinking about how good God is and how God is for you. When I go to the gym to lift weights, I'm gonna listen to like Rage Against the Machine. When I go to do jujitsu and practice murder on my friends, I'm gonna listen to something that's gonna get me hyped up, get my blood pumping, because I'm getting ready to go fight, right? If I'm already angry, I don't need to listen to music that's going to make me angrier. So I don't go lift weights. I don't deadlift listening to Hillsong United with my hands held high, worshiping God. That's madness. I listen to something that's going to let me tackle that weight and get my adrenaline pumping. The opposite is true. When I need peace in my life, I'm going to listen to some music that's going to posture my heart towards Jesus. Does that make sense? So practically, do that this week. Go to the One Church Facebook page or go to the One Church Worship Facebook page where we post our song list. Go get that music and incorporate it in your life. I'm not saying every minute of your day you gotta listen to Jesus' music. I'm saying you should know when I'm angry, isolated, and afraid, I need to be able to worship and turn to God, and I need to have that ready. Sing, journal. That's what the whole book of Psalms is. It's a song book. It's a lot of journaling. It's David saying, I love you, God, you're my strength. And then a couple chapters later saying, God, look at all my enemies. Would you please punch them in the mouth? That's the Carlo version, but it's really what David says. Break their teeth, smash them to pieces. God, fight for me. All of that is David communicating, worshiping with God, getting it all out. When it hits the van, focus on God. When your friends fail you, and they will, here's what you focus on, forgiveness. Jesus modeled this for us. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Yes, he was talking about the people who were crucifying him, but guess who else? His friends left him. They abandoned him to die. God, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. David's men got so bitter, they thought about stoning him, but David didn't focus on their anger. He didn't take revenge on those guys. He empathized. He understood hurt people hurt people. So when you're dealing with that, maybe this week, People let you down. Show some grace. Remember that you too have let someone down. Focus on forgiveness so that you don't make things worse. Do something nice for them. And then finally, when you're overcome with emotion, encourage yourself. You say, how do I do that? I feel so terrible. Make a journal of God's faithfulness to you. Today, before you go to sleep, this week, sometime, Make a top 10 list. Here are the 10 things God has done that are really, really awesome for me. 10 times God saved me, 10 blessings from God. Keep that thing in your pocket. Put it on your refrigerator. Put it on your mirror. Put it in your car. Put it as a memo in your phone. And so when you're angry, isolated, and afraid, now you have a practical step 
of how can I remember what God has done for me? When David saw those men willing to stone him and he saw Ziklag burned, I'm certain David remembered the same God who saved me from the hand of King Saul, the same God who saved me from Goliath, the same God who saved me from the bear and the giant, the same God, the same God, the same God who did it back then, he's able to do it now, and that's what I'm gonna put my trust in. That's what I'm going to focus in. Maybe you're here and you're, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You don't know a lot about this God stuff. I'll just encourage you, hey, just count your blessings. What's good in your life? I don't have anything good but my coffee maker. Awesome. When you're drinking your coffee, give God the glory for your coffee. Do you think you can do that? I don't have anything good in my life but this piece of pizza that I'm about to eat. So here's what you do. God, life sucks, and I'm angry, and I'm bitter, but this pizza is awesome. Thank you. I'm not trying to trivialize it. I'm trying to give you a very practical way that even when you can't see the goodness around you, I promise you, you can do this. (sighs) Thank you, God, for that breath. Because there's someone who didn't get to do that today, and I just did. And I can't find anything else good about my life, but I have that breath. And I'm going to choose to say that that breath came because you gave it to me. Thanks, God. You'd be amazed at how you'll develop the ability to worship God when you fight through all the mess and find that one thing. When you feel forsaken, you are mistaken because God's with you. He's for you. Don't run. Remember all that God has done for you and you'll see yourself being able to stand up even under the heaviest weight, not because you have strength, but because you're choosing to worship. You're choosing to live in the reality that there is a God and I'm not him. In my life in 2003, when I left to go to war in Iraq, I left behind my wife, Jamie. She was almost full, full-term pregnant with twin daughters. When I got to Kuwait, to Iraq, to make my phone call to say, hey, I'm here, I got the terrible news from Jamie that our daughters had died. So I had to fly from the Middle East back to the States, and it was three weeks of hell, three weeks of not understanding why did our daughters die. My wife's liver was failing, so she was dying too, and we're walking through all this, and guess where I have to go back in three weeks? back to war for a year. And it was a terrible time of questioning of God, why is this happening? And I'll never forget in the hospital, Jamie saying, I am so mad at God right now. I'm so angry that we're going through this, but there's no way our good God is gonna waste this pain. She didn't say some cliche, everything happens for a reason. She didn't say, oh, God is good. She didn't do any of that cheesy stuff. She was real. God, this sucks and I'm mad at you, but you're God and I'm not. And there's no way you're going to waste this pain. There's no way we're just going through this for nothing. So we're going to choose to continue to be faithful and trust God. Doctors told us we'll never have kids again because the same complications that caused her to to lose the twins, it would just keep happening. And so we lived for over a year just with that nightmare of we may never be able to have kids again. But we chose to trust God and remember his faithfulness. See, with our oldest son, Jamie's water broke when she was 20 weeks old with our oldest son. Doctor said, this child's not gonna be viable. You're going into labor. You might as well schedule your DNC now. You're gonna miscarry this child at best or worse, you're gonna deliver and there's not gonna be anything viable. We fired that doctor, said, no, we're gonna choose hope. We're gonna choose life. And we chose life and trusted God. And after a long season of bed rest and drinking more water than humans should ever drink, uh, the son that tried to come at 20 weeks, he was so late, he was a week over his due date they had to induce him to bring him into this world. And I have an almost 19-year-old son named Tony, and I have a 13-year-old powerhouse named David, who they're not supposed to be here. 
Everything fell apart in our lives. Circumstances said it's over, throw in the towel, quit, blame someone, blame God. And yet we chose to remember the same God who saved us time and time and time again would continue to be there for us. And he restored our family and gave us more than we could ever deserve, more than we could ever get on our own. When everything falls apart, you can choose to worship God. Worship anyway. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your power. Thank you for saving us and giving us stories. I thank you for my story, God, that it's not about me getting the glory or Jamie. It's just a testimony of your faithfulness that when it looks like everything has fallen apart, God, you show up always right on time to restore in your way, making things brand new. For the person here, God, who's just really, really hurting and struggling, I pray that you would help them to see you in the middle of that pain. Help them to worship you and to trust you with all of their heart, not to lean on their own understanding. God, the person here who's not yet said yes to you, they're trying to do life on their own. I pray right now, they say, God, forgive me, help me. I've blown it. I need your help. And I know as they pray that prayer, God, you do what only you can do. You save them by your mighty hand. Help us as your people to be light in this dark world, a world full of so much pain. Help us to show people that, God, you are for them. Help us, God, to share this great message that we can worship even when all is falling apart. And we thank you, God, for your goodness and for your faithfulness in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning, One Church. We love you. Go out and be the church.